You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. Let me tell you what you did wrong this time, King of Kings. You know the moment he enters the tent that something is wrong. His eyes, which usually shine with laughter and kindness, are cold and remote, burnt-out stars. A part of you thinks, how could they not be, given all he's seen, all you've both seen? He takes your hands in his, and before he opens his mouth, you know whatever he says will be terrible. I've done all I can, Briseis. I've secured a promise that he will not touch you, but even I cannot stop this. His voice breaks on the last word, and suddenly you are afraid he will start weeping. You do not know how you will endure this if you have to comfort him. It is done, then. Your voice is steady and cold. He does not know that you died a long time ago. Ten years ago, when his lover sacked your city, slit the throats of your father, your brothers, and husband, your husband who had not yet put a baby in you, who left you with no kingdom, no children, nothing. Sometimes you are grateful that he left you with nothing. It is easier to survive this way, when each day you are just waking and rising for yourself. You've seen other women, women with children. Their eyes are more haunted than yours, especially those with daughters. They know that at any time the men will come for their girls, and there is no protection save a knife in the darkness, a doorway to the next life. It is, says Patroclus. Then what choice have I? You remember all those lessons your mother gave you when you were younger. Never show weakness to men. Hold your head high, you are royalty. Only allow yourself to fall apart when you're alone, truly alone, away from servants who gossip. Preferably, submerge your head in the bathwater or the sea and scream. I am truly sorry, Briseis. I promise he will not harm you. He's a greedy, selfish, small man, but he will not touch you. This is all posturing. It's just to send a message. It's symbolic. You'll be returned soon, and then Achilles will marry you. You cannot take a wife off a man. We've discussed this. No one will ever lay a hand on you again. You'll be safe. 
Patroclus almost sounds like he believes those words, but you both know that it is the small men, those who are the most fragile, who do the worst damage. And I suppose good Prince Achilles will not even see me off. You want to spit his name. This man who destroyed your world again and again. This man who was supposed to be your safe harbor after everything he took from you. Not because it was the decent or right thing to do. To him, you are just another spoil of war. But because Patroclus insisted. To Patroclus, you are a human, a friend. And because of Patroclus, you spent the last ten years enduring in this terrible place. It has not been an easy existence, but it hasn't been as bad as some of the other women have had it. And for that, you cannot thank the gods. You cannot thank Achilles. You can only thank Patroclus. You know him as well as I do. He was ready to tear out Agamemnon's throat for you, but the goddess intervened. Now, he will not leave his tent, not until the great king comes to him on bowed knees and begs him. Patroclus sinks to his feet before you. He bows his head. I am so sorry. Even after all this time, I am so useless. You look down at him. His eyes glisten with tears. You would like to tell him how unfair it is that he is making you comfort him. He has failed you. They have all failed you. But he is the one person on this God's forsaken beach who cares. And to see him before you, begging your forgiveness, gives you a sense of peace. He knows what you are going off to face, and his heart grieves for you. You bend down and place a kiss on his forehead. Do not weep for me. For ten years I have been a spoil of war, but you never once made me feel that way. That is more than any other woman on this beach could hope for. You square your shoulders. You are ready. When the men come for you, their hands rough on your shoulders, coarse and cold, you do not look back. You cannot bear to see his eyes. It's better this way. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Last week, we followed Achilles to Aulis, where we explored the roots of his conflict with Agamemnon. This week, we're going with Achilles to war and taking a closer look at his relationship with the woman around whom the events in the Iliad turn, a woman named Briseis. Achilles had taken Briseis as a war prize at the beginning of the Trojan War. And the way he saw her, his relationship with her, while it's a bit hard to parse out, is intrinsically tied to this fact. To understand Briseis, her relationship with Achilles, and her reality on the Trojan beach, it's essential to take a closer look at how booty, including people, was traditionally divvied up in ancient warlike cultures and the realities of women in war. Booty could be wealth and riches, furniture, vessels, livestock, basically anything that wasn't nailed down, and it could also be people. Women play a crucial role as booty in the Iliad, and this is where we have to take another pause and talk about what that actually meant and what happened to women during war. So this is your warning. This is going to get very dark. We're going to talk about violence against women, sexual abuse, rape, everything. You might want to skip ahead. It's a pretty long quote, and we do need to read you the whole thing, and then we're going to break it down. So this, but it's important. You have to understand this or else you can't really understand the Iliad. I think you can skip it if you really do not want this in your head right now, but we did feel it was important to include it because it really informs a lot of what we're going to be talking about next, especially Briseis and how her relationship with Achilles is sometimes romanticized. Like, we need to show you what's underneath that. Totally understand if you don't want to listen to this, though. So, women got the real shit out of the stick in war if their side didn't win. 
And we're going to include a very long quote from Paul Crystal in his article, Women at War in the Ancient World, because I didn't think I could rephrase it or say it any better. Paul Crystal also wrote a book called Women at War in the Ancient World, and it's a really excellent source on this topic. I actually have it. So this is the dark truth of what happened to women who found themselves on the losing side of a conflict. Quote, wherever and whenever there is a war, there are victims. Many are male combatants, but many more are usually civilians, non-combatants, who include women among their number. Ancient Greece and Rome were no different. Women could and did participate in battle, but often they are left to pick up the pieces during and after the war, sometimes literally. For women, more often than not, their war is not over when the war is over. Wartime sexual and gender-based violence has a real, enduring impact on women's lives long after the fighting has stopped. Women suffer abject shame and widowhood. They wait anxiously at home, always expecting the worst of bad news. When the shock of that bad news abates, they are left to grieve and mourn and to struggle on with their lives, often working their farms or businesses alone and bringing up young, fatherless children. Where the husband-soldier is wounded, they may have to spend their lives as carers, tending limbless or otherwise traumatized ex-servicemen, coping with all the physical and psychological issues disabling injury brings. If raped, the women and girls are ostracized, rejected by husbands and families. They submit to body shame and loss of personal esteem. Sometimes they are displaced, their cities and homes wrecked or requisitioned, forced to move on as penniless refugees, carted off to strange and inhospitable lands with foreign languages and customs where they may suffer more prejudice and sexual and gender-based violence, just as often as they are sold into slavery or become concubines, considered no better than just another bit of war booty. Women and girls suffer unspeakable and abhorrent abuse, physical, sexual, and psychological. They are raped, sometimes orally and anally. They might be gang-raped or repeatedly raped over long periods of time. They may be plagued with sexually transmitted infections. There is the possibility of unwanted pregnancies, the half-foreign offspring from which are a lifetime's haunting reminder of the violence and trauma they endured. They endure ad hoc abortions with all the concomitant infections. They are tortured, horribly mutilated, and murdered, sometimes in front of their husbands and children, as they too await a similar fate. That was very dark. I think, I think the thing is, what happened was I went on this deep dive to find out how booty was divided, which actually... It's also awful, but it's not quite as dark as this. And when I found this quote and I really got thinking over and over in my head about it, it kind of helped me get into the mindset of what life would have been like for someone like Briseis, one of the women who becomes Achilles' booty. You know, it's really dark. It's difficult to hear. It was difficult for us to read. But I also think that it's important because that relationship, like that Achilles-Briseis relationship is romanticized. I mean, this is what happens in Troy circa 2004. I love that movie, but I think that it's important to understand the reality of this. And we're going to talk about Briseis coming up, so we want to keep this in our minds. This is the reality. People understanding and, and hearing and reading this epic at the time would know this, and some of them would have experienced it. Some of them would be experiencing it. Like, one of the really interesting things that I didn't even think about is the long-standing effects of, like, when your husband comes back from war and he's been traumatized or he's lost limbs or your relationship is so strange, like, you were so happy to have this person back, but 
you're both so changed and different from this experience. How do you put your lives back together, even when that's maybe the best of options? And I also want to say here that this is not something that was limited to the ancient world. So what happened to women during war, what still happens to women during war even today, was and is horrifying. It was a never-ending nightmare. And the worst of it was that when the war was over, when they'd watched everything they loved burned or brutalized, they were then brutalized and forced to live, either as wives or enslaved, to the men who had destroyed their worlds. One of the things that could happen to women in war in the ancient world was that they could be handed out as booty to the conquering quote-unquote heroes. And I think there's something really important to mention here about gender and war and about how war affected gender and may still affect gender today. We talked about how the ancient Greeks painstakingly constructed gender. In this episode, we've talked about how the impenetrable penetrator dynamic for male gender kind of broke down and devolved into smash-and-grab masculinity. But for women, gender at war looked like gender as property. And perhaps it was most pronounced at war, but this absolutely bled over into peacetime a lot. Women were legally considered property throughout the ancient world in most times and places, even when not at war. Even going really far into the present and in some places still in the present. Absolutely. And it's hard to believe that this didn't stem from ancient warlike cultures and how women were treated as spoils. I mean, I think that's linked. Anyway, so after a battle, the property of the losing side, not just the warriors, but community property as a whole, women, men, children, people, would be pooled together and then doled out. So who got the best cut? This is kind of fuzzy. The king might get the best cut, but the thing is, a good king knows that he has to keep his best people loyal and motivated. And if a king is to be seen keeping all the best stuff for himself, the smash and grab warriors are not going to stay motivated to bring that booty in. And this is how the warriors got paid. They were not getting a salary to be at war. They got paid only in what they could take. Again, this is why it's super important that the guy you're serving under, your smash-and-grab leader, is good at getting that booty. Gift-giving was an important part of a warlord's job and how he kept power and influence, to the point where in the ancient world, in some cultures, it made more sense to give away your wealth to your best warriors than to hoard it. And that actually makes a lot of sense. Like, it makes sense that they would pile it all up and then the king would be seen to be the one divvying it out because the king wants to seem like the person from whom the gifts flow. If it's just like you go and take your own shit, then why would you follow the king? And this is exactly the conflict that Achilles and Agamemnon are having right now. Exactly. So generally in the ancient world, based on what we know in epics and other sources, booty was divvied up based on merit. The best warriors got the biggest cut, but booty didn't just include goods and livestock, it also included people, it included women. And here's how this works when women were divided up among warriors after a conflict. There was a hierarchy to which women got assigned to which men. And of course, the highest ranking men, the best warriors, would get the quote-unquote best women. Women had a value assigned to them based on rank. Were they a princess or an aristocrat? That made them more valuable. Beauty. The more attractive you were, you were higher value. Virginity. Virgins were more valuable booty, and hot virgins, well, forget about it. Childbearing ability. If you could still have kids, you were young, ideally, you had more value than older women who were no longer able to bear children. And then finally, older women. They were less valuable, but they might still have some value in, I don't know, doing other menial work. 
I mean, women with kids who could still have kids, they were less valuable than virgins, even though we know that they are able to bear children? Question mark? If you could still have kids, then you were valuable. And if you couldn't have kids, well, it kind of depended on like, did you have a special skill? Did they even ask you that before they killed you? I mean, and my question is, if a woman is an aristocrat, but she has kids already, is she less valuable than someone who's a virgin and a hottie? I don't know. I'm just trying to, like, weigh all this stuff. I mean, look, this is this is a toxic lens to go down. But I mean, essentially, essentially, this is how it broke down. If you were an aristocratic woman who was still relatively hot, even if you had kids that would put you probably up there pretty high. It's just questionable. Like, the logic breaks down is what I'm trying to point out. A woman who already had children and who's still of childbearing age, she has proven that she can bear children because this isn't necessarily a given. Like, some women weren't fertile. One in three women died in childbirth in some ancient communities, depending. This is a woman who's proven her ability to bear children, but a virgin is more valuable somehow? I don't know. I mean, it tends to be because of their age. Oh, they married them off awfully young, so. Well, that's what I'm saying. We're talking about quite young girls. We're talking about real dark nonsense. And we're also talking about sometimes girls who would have been seen as being priestesses. And I guess like. I think it's because they were virginal, right? Depending, I guess, depending on the god, really. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Anyway, so it's this dark, toxic stew that is extremely toxic that lays out what things would have looked like on that beach in Troy. At the end of a hard day of fighting, all the men would be forced to bring their booty, including the women they'd captured from the enemy community, before the king of kings to lay it all at the king's feet, and then the booty would be doled out. 
And like we said, the king wanted to be seen as the one granting the booty because this is the way he held on to his own power and influence. Everything had to flow from his open hand. It's like Fulvia wanting all the land grants to flow through Antony, right? Yeah. So the men who fought the best, who brought in the most booty, or who Agamemnon really needed to keep on side, would get the best pick of the women, riches, food, and whatever else everybody happened to haul in. And somebody like Achilles, who was always getting A-plus marks in his performance review, would have been entitled to his pick of women. They had to keep him motivated, right? But here's the thing. What do you do if your binary, your masculine binary, is all about having women as a valuable spoil, but you're not interested in women? You still take all the beautiful women as property because honor is at stake. Honor is at stake. That's right, Cucullin. But then what? You're basically taking women from other men, right? Like, that's how they would see it. Maybe. That's exactly how they'd see it. And maybe it's for your men who are your elite shock force and you need to keep them happy. Right. That's the thing. Achilles isn't the only one who has to be kept happy here. Questionable whether Achilles isn't also interested in women. We'll get into that in a second. But anyway, into this horror scene that we have now painted for you, we turn to look at the central conflict that began the Iliad, the taking of a war prize, a woman won in war, from the best of the Greeks. Ugh, I can't believe I just said that, now that I know what I know. Achilles. Believe it or not, we are finally at the events of the Iliad. It's wild, right? We have had three episodes, three women, three episodes, three women into our look at Achilles' life, and we finally hit the Iliad, the story he is most famous for. You're welcome. (laughs) We don't skimp on anything here in this podcast. If you want a deep dive, come here. You want a deep dive into that fan fiction, come here. Please don't use us as your PhD thesis source. Please do not. We warn you up front. Look, we have some great theories if you're a literature student here. But, uh, you know, find your own way through the Iliad. We did. (laughs) So let's set the scene. We have to do a pretty big time jump at this point. Achilles and Patroclus have been fighting in the Trojan War for 10 years. It's been a very long slog, camped out on the Trojan beach, fighting and fucking and plundering, at times living their best life, and at others at odds with each other and the world, because that's also part of life, even for heroes. The days are very much the same. Achilles and Patroclus go out and fight the Trojans, generally to some kind of a bloody stalemate, and then head back to their camp at night, where they fuck and snuggle. And dab lovingly at each other's wounds. (laughs) Achilles is a prime warrior, so he's amassed a lot of booty and war prizes. One of those quote-unquote prizes is a woman named Briseis. So Achilles won, quote-unquote, Briseis after he sacked her city and killed her husband, her father, and her brothers. He basically just slaughtered her entire family. This happened toward the beginning of the war, and she was, let's be clear, a big catch. High status, beautiful, almost a virgin, just married. Everyone wanted her in their tents, because she was hot, that was the thing. She was the ultimate status symbol, and the fact that Achilles got her definitely rankled other men, particularly Agamemnon. And there are several reasons why this may be the case. One, it's possible that Achilles wasn't interested in women at all. He had his lover by his side on the battlefield. That would be Patroclus. According to this theory, the only use Achilles would have had for a woman like Briseis is as a status symbol. He is taking Briseis into his tent at people. 
He wanted to raise his standing among the other men. And remember, at the beginning of the war, which is when, I guess, Achilles took Briseis as a war captive, he was still trying to prove his masculinity to everyone around him. If that's the case, Agamemnon might think, why waste a beautiful girl on Achilles? If he's not interested in having sex with Briseis, then why allow him to keep a really hot girl? And... This relationship between Achilles and Briseis is often romanticized, as we've said, a lot. And when the story is straightwashed, Briseis is often Achilles' main love interest, and Patroclus gets painted as a platonic friend or cousin. And we've seen one version, Troy Fall of the City, where they're a thruple. And I think, realistically, and here's a warning, I'm going to talk about sexual violence and stuff like that, but I think, realistically, in real life, Achilles absolutely had sex with Briseis, potentially not consensual sex, potentially he raped her. I think so, like, yeah, look at the context! Yeah, exactly. This was war, this happened a lot. Yeah, it's possible he wasn't attracted to women at all, but I don't think this is probable because Achilles was attracted to Didymea. I think potentially he might have been bisexual or pansexual or he just wanted who he wanted. Like, I do think that Patroclus was the great love of Achilles' life, but I don't think he was necessarily only attracted to men because we have the Didymea story. I think he was bisexual. I really do. And I think the reality is, at the very least, he had sex with her. More than likely, it was not consensual sex because... At the point in time where I assume he would have had sex with her, he would not have been, he would not have cared about consent because he would have had sex with her very early into taking her as a captive to essentially claim her as his and to make sure everyone knew this was his property. Whether or not they had a Stockholm Syndrome romance that went on after that that is still not okay and still coercive, I don't know. If we're looking at it from a realistic standpoint, I don't necessarily think you could call it consensual no matter what time in the relationship it is. Like, I just don't. I think that maybe Briseis would have tried to survive in any way possible, and that might have involved some emotional labor around Achilles and making him think that she cared about him. And maybe she would have had Stockholm Syndrome and convinced herself that she cared about him as a survival mechanism. I wouldn't call any of that consensual. And to be honest, none of it is romantic, right? And it's super important to say that because a lot of times Achilles is a hero. The things he does are supposed to be heroic. But the definition of hero here that the ancient Greeks had and their how they saw heroes is not the way we see heroes. But these myths and the idea that maybe they eventually came to care for each other were important also because they were telling a story of what the reality was for a lot of women. A lot of women would have been Briseis, right? So, like, it, it's one of the many reasons why I keep coming back to the importance of, this, of the story of, like, the rape of Persephone. And it's super important because these were myths that were not just stories that existed in silos. They were a huge part of women's lives. A lot of women would have been Briseis. They would have potentially been taken in war and made a war captive or a war prize and either made the wife or concubine of these men. And this would be their life. They were not able to, like, run away or get away from these people. But regardless of this tangent that we've been on, men like Agamemnon were not happy with this arrangement with Achilles having the most beautiful girl. But the problem was they needed Achilles. And to be fair, he had one Briseis, in quotation marks, through his might with his sword and spear. So Agamemnon couldn't just take her away, right? Not without starting a whole lot of fucking drama. (laughs) A whole lot of fucking drama called the Iliad. Briseis 
was described as fair-faced. She was young and beautiful, and as we've said before, there have been many attempts to romanticize the relationship between Achilles and Briseis. But the reality is that she was a war captive. At best, Achilles essentially ignored her, didn't rape her, and let her live a life amongst his camp free of rape, sexual violence, and threats. I mean, that's that's very optimistic. I do not think that is the reality. At worst, Achilles kept her as a bed slave, forced himself on her, and maybe over time with Stockholm Syndrome, they had a kind of captor-captive relationship where Briseis came to empathize with him. Basically, Stockholm Syndrome as a survival mechanism, right? And we say that because in all the representations of this story that we've seen, there is some kind of a connection between them. Either it's real Stockholm syndrome or it's deeper than that. There's usually one indicated. And I want to stop here for a minute and just talk a little bit about the representations we've seen of this Achilles Briseis story. So let's talk about Troy 2004 first, because I think that is the most problematic, most straightwashed, most lovingly romantic that you can get. It is pure fantasy. Yeah, in that version, Achilles and Briseis are in love. He takes her at the point of his spear and then lovingly dabs at her wounds. And then they have amazing sex and they're in love with each other. So essentially what we're seeing here playing out is an enemies to lovers trope. And I don't think there was a single female in the writer's room at this point in time. And there is absolutely no look at the idea of consent or how a woman would feel about this. They make some moments where she's like, I hate you because you sacked my temple and killed my people and my family. But the appeal and allure of the male sexual Achilles is just too great. I mean, have you seen Brad Pitt's abs? Uh, He did kill my entire family, but those abs, like. (laughs) And I think the super important thing here is what Troy 2004 does that's going to be different from some of the other versions we talk about is it firmly makes this a fantasy. There is nothing about their relationship or really most of the relationships of the other characters that doesn't feel fantastical and larger than life and not at all within, A, the binary that these stories existed. I mean, where are all the people of color? Or B, within like, it doesn't take any time to really delve too deep into any of the any of the meat behind uh, the Iliad or the story they're telling. And you kind of have to take it for what it is, which is very surface and very sword and sandal epic. So, okay, so this is the ro- most romanticized, most straight wash version, the most ridiculous version. Let's go into The Silence of the Girls. So The Silence of the Girls is a novel by Pat Barker which is from Briseis's perspective, and it really treats this realistically. This is not romantic. This is a war-captive situation where the relationship between Achilles and Briseis is rape. I think they do come to have kind of a... I don't know that Briseis really ever is feels anything for Achilles. Like, I don't think she ever loves him or anything, but I think that they do have a weird Stockholm syndrome connection at certain points, but I also think that this is pure survival on Briseis's part. Like, I don't think she's ever all in on Achilles or anything. I think she's just like, I need to survive. And it's probably the most realistic take on this relationship that I've seen. Yeah, and it's, um, it's real dark. It's a tough book. You will not love Achilles by the end of it. But I think it's super important. And it, if you're looking for something to read because you've been fascinated by what we've been talking about, give it a read. 
and it will open your eyes. It will give you a lot more insight into how it worked being a, a woman who was taken as a spoil of war and what it looked like to live with your, your captors. So our next interpretation is The Song of Achilles, which is by Madeline Miller. It is one of my all-time favorite books. In this iteration of the story, Achilles and Perseus are not sleeping together. And Patroclus makes Achilles take Briseis and these other women who are spoils of war, as many as Achilles can get, essentially, to be a part of like their tent and their camp to keep them protected from rape by the other soldiers. It's a very idealized and romanticized version in some ways of what women's life would have been like in this camp. Yeah, I see this as romanticized in the opposite way, you know, like it's not romanticized like the way Troy from 2004 is romanticized, but it is in a way romanticizing. I mean, not. I don't think that Madeline Miller necessarily idealizes Achilles. Like, I think she treats him as like he, he is kind of romanticized a bit, but. No, no, I think she's idealizing and romanticizing Patroclus here. He's the one who says, let's do this. And he comes out of this as a huge romantic hero because it's like, as a woman reading this book, you're like, God, I hope there's someone in this army like Patroclus who will just take me and make sure that like I'm safe. And like you get the idea that the women who are taken by Achilles, if they want to get with a dude, can get with a dude. And if they don't want to, no one's going to rape them. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an optimistic look at it from the historical perspective. But it is one it is one way you can interpret it if you take the tack that Achilles just isn't interested in women. Maybe not even that he's not not interested in women, that he's committed to Patroclus and they're monogamous, right? If you take that track, then that makes a lot of sense because, you know, maybe Patroclus is not okay with him having other lovers. It's all fanfic, but what I like about this version of the story is if you're gonna write a fantasy, if you're gonna write fanfic based on the Iliad and Achilles, like, it's kind of nice to see a reality where maybe women don't get the worst of things. Yeah. And then the fourth one we're going to talk about here is Troy Fall of a City, which is a series on Netflix in which Patroclus, Achilles, and Briseis are in a threesome. I don't know. I kind of like this take because, you know, they all clearly have intense feelings for each other in this version, which I also like. Like, it does make sense of certain things. Troy Fall of a City is hot garbage and almost unwatchable in places. But the one thing they got right was I do think that potentially there was a a thruple, a, a poly relationship between Achilles, Patroclus, and Briseis as time went on. I do think they had complicated feelings for each other, potentially, and I like to see that represented. Troy Fall of a City, for me, I liked some things about it. I didn't like some things about it. I haven't watched the whole thing through yet, but I do remember that they were a power thruple in this one, and I was like, oh, that's a cool interpretation. I mean, they weren't quite a power thruple. They might have been had things gone differently, but they should have been. Right. They were a thruple. I don't know if they rose to the level of power thruple. So, Jenny, we've seen these four representations. They all show us something different about this relationship. But which one is the most accurate, according to the Iliad? Well, that's really hard to say, Jen. There are moments in the Iliad which hint that maybe there might have been a connection between Achilles and Briseis. I think there's more evidence that there's a connection between Briseis and Patroclus in the actual Iliad. But let's break it down and you can judge for yourself what's going on here. So we'll begin with the famous opening lines of the Iliad. Quote, Goddess, sing me the anger of Achilles, Peleus' son, 
that fatal anger that brought countless sorrows on the Greeks, and sent many valiant souls of warriors down to Hades, leaving their bodies as spoil for dogs and carrion birds, for thus was the will of Zeus brought to fulfillment. Sing of it from the moment when Agamemnon, Atreus' son, that king of men, parted in wrath from noble Achilles. So we wanted to include this because it really sets the stage for this part of the episode. We're going to talk about what happens when two men butt heads over their honor, their pride, and most importantly, their gender. This is toxic masculinity in action, and you can see it as far back as the Iliad. And we are going to talk about the relationship between Achilles and Briseis and Achilles and Patroclus as we go on. So we'll get there. We just have to talk about what actually happens in the Iliad, and then you'll see. So Agamemnon and his army sack the Trojan Temple of Apollo in year 10 of the war. While they do this, they take a 19-year-old girl named Chryseis, not Briseis, Chryseis, different person, Her name means golden. Anyway, so this girl at the end of year 10 of the war is taken as a war prize. She's also pretty high up on the woman booty hierarchy. Okay, let's let's go down the toxic hierarchy here. She was a hottie. That's the most important one. She was a virgin. She was not an aristocrat, but she was a priestess, and that's also pretty revered. And she was a priestess of Apollo. They are 100% confirmed virgins. There's this extremely gross quote from this poet called Setsi's quote, very young and thin, with milky skin, had blonde hair and small breasts. Awesome. 19 years old and still a virgin. I mean, this guy is like leering at her through the text right now. (laughs) So gross. I need a shower after reading that. That's a way to give us a real gross male gaze. So anyway, Chryseis is the daughter of a priest of Apollo, and she's a priestess herself. Apollo generally demanded virginity of his priestesses, so she is definitely off limits, unless Apollo wanted to sleep with one of his priestesses, in which case, I don't know what happens there. Poor Cassandra. Men should not be looking at Chryseis. But you know Agamemnon. He sees a beautiful young girl, and he has to either fuck her or murder her for a good win. And as you know by now, I am not kidding. So Agamemnon takes Chryseis for his, quote, war prize. He refuses her father's offer to pay a ransom to get her back. Her father's like, let me give you a ransom and you give her back and don't fuck with her. Because if you fuck with her, you're fucking with Apollo. And Agamemnon's like, 19 years old and still a virgin. She's all mine. And Agamemnon gets really into Chryseis. He tells everyone that he loves this girl more than his own wife, Clytemnestra. And Clytemnestra at this point in time would probably be okay with that. She's off running Mycenae, fucking Agamemnon's cousin, and plotting Agamemnon's death should he survive the war. There isn't much love lost here between these two. But if you thought Artemis was a vindictive goddess, then wait for what happens when her twin brother, Apollo, finds out that his temple has been sacked and desecrated, his priest kept as prisoners, and his virgin priestess raped. Shit goes down. One of the things a lot of people, me included, can forget about Apollo is that he's the god of plagues. And when he finds out what Agamemnon has done, he sends a plague to decimate the Trojan forces. Soldiers are dying left and right, They can't burn the bodies fast enough. The situation is getting really dire. And so they turn to the prophet Calchas. And this is the same prophet who told Agamemnon that in order to get a good win, the king would have to sacrifice his daughter. So he's 
naturally like not everyone's best friend, particularly Agamemnon's. Yeah, he's always the bearer of bad news and he's always like bumming Agamemnon out. <laughs> Let me tell you what you did wrong this time, King of Kings. So Calchas is rightfully fearful of giving Agamemnon bad news. So he goes to Achilles and says, if I tell you what Apollo wants in exchange for lifting the plague, you've got to protect me, please. This is what Achilles says in reply, quote, swift-footed Achilles spoke in reply, courage, and say out what truth you know, for by God, beloved Apollo, to whom you pray, whose utterances you grant to the Greeks, none shall lay hand on you beside the hollow ships, no Greek while I live and see the earth, not even if it's Agamemnon, you mean, who counts himself the best of the Greeks. Then the peerless seer took heart and spoke to him, saying, Not for a broken vow or a missed sacrifice does he blame us, but because of that priest whom Agamemnon offended, refusing the ransom, refusing to free his daughter, that is why the god, the far striker, makes us suffer, and will do so, and will not rid the Greeks of loathsome plague until we return the bright-eyed girl to her father, without his recompense or ransom, and send a sacred offering to Chrysi, that's the father, the priest, then we might persuade him to relent. So Achilles promises to protect Calchas, and Calchas speaks truth to power. He's laying out Apollo's demands, even if Agamemnon doesn't like it, because Achilles said he would watch his back. And like you can imagine, this prophecy goes down like a lead balloon with Agamemnon. He's pissed. And since Achilles gave protection to this prophet, Agamemnon blames Achilles for everything. This is what Agamemnon says. Quote, Brave you may be, godlike Achilles, but don't try to trick me with your cleverness. You'll not outwit me or cajole me. Do you think, since you demand I return her, that I'll sit here without a prize while you keep yours? Let the great-hearted Greeks find a prize, one that's to my taste, so the exchange is equal. If not, then I myself will take yours. So, Agamemnon, he's <laughs> acting like the biggest dill hole on the planet. He's like, okay, you know what? We'll send Chryseis back, but you guys had better find me an equally smoking hot virgin to take her place in my bed. Or else I'm going to take your war prize, Achilles. And if you want to know who that might be, it rhymes with Chryseis. And you know what? That actually makes sense in terms of the booty hierarchy. Briseis <laughs> is about equal to Chryseis. Briseis is not a virgin, but then Chryseis is not an aristocrat. But both are hot. Key detail. This is really fucking dark, and it shows exactly how these men feel about women. I mean, I don't have to say that, but apparently I need to say that because we're now in ancient Greece. So, what this tells us about Achilles is fascinating. Achilles is willing to go against Agamemnon, partially because they have this long-standing beef from their time at Aulis, and partially because he's the best of the fighters, the one that Agamemnon cannot win this war without. Achilles knows that Agamemnon needs him. And Achilles does not take Agamemnon's threat, the one where Agamemnon threatened to take his female war captive, well. Achilles has a huge ego, and the idea that Agamemnon feels that he can just take something that belongs to him, something that he won in battle, is a huge blow to his honor and pride. Not to mention, this something we're talking about is a woman, a human, an actual person. So here is Achilles' argument for why he's furious at Agamemnon. Quote, 
Why, you shameless schemer! Why should any Greek leap to obey your orders to march or wage war? No quarrel with Trojan spearmen brought me here to fight. They have done me no wrong. No horse or cow of mine have they stolen. Nor have my crops been ravaged in deep-soiled Pythia, nurturer of men, since the shadowy mountains and the echoing sea lie between us. No, for your pleasure, you shameless cur, we followed to try and win recompense for you and Menelaus from the Trojans. And you neither see nor care, and even threaten to rob me of my prize given by the sons of Greece, reward for which I labored. When the Greeks sack some rich Trojan city, it's not I who win the prize. My hands bear the brunt of the fiercest fight. But when the wealth is shared, yours is the greater, while I return weary with battle to the ships, with some small fraction for my own. So now I'm for Pythia, since it's better to lead my beaked ships home than stay here dishonored, piling up wealth and goods for you. Agamemnon, king of men, answered him, Be off if your heart demands it. I'll not beg your presence on my account. Others who will honor me are with me, Zeus above all, the lord of counsel. Of all the god-beloved princes here, you are the most odious to me, since war, contention, strife are dear to you. If you are the greatest warrior, well, it was some god, I think, who granted it. Go home with your ships and men and lord it over the Myrmidons. I care not for you or your anger. And here's my threat. Since Apollo robs me of Chrysi's daughter, a ship and crew of mine will return her. But I'll pay your quarters a visit myself and take that prize of yours, fair-faced Briseis, so that you know my power exceeds yours and that others will think twice before claiming they're my peers and comparing themselves to me face to face. There's a lot to unpack here. You do see Achilles's resentment over Agamemnon taking war prizes that he's earned. So you see that clash of smash and grab masculinity, right? That's why I put this in here. You really see Achilles like laying it out like, man, I am doing all the work and I'm not, I haven't complained. But now this is how you're repaying me? Now you're just going to go ahead and take some of my booty that I earned, even though you take most of it anyway? And also, very clearly, he's comparing Briseis to cows and goods and objects. Like, she's very much property to him. Yeah, don't look too closely at that, Jenny. Come on, this is the ancient world. You and I might be worth one cow, but Briseis is worth a whole herd. <laughs> I think I would be very low on the, on the booty hierarchy. I mean, number one, I'm not a virgin. <laughs> number two... Look, I'm not going to date myself, okay? But I'm not 14 anymore, ladies. I'm not 19 and a virgin, so I am kind of low on the on the hierarchy. We are stone-cold hotties, though. We are stone-cold hotties. Look, we might not be aristocrats, but we know, we know what we're doing. We know what we've got. We know how to work it, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, so Achilles is finally just venting 10 years of frustrations on Agamemnon about his stuff and how much of his stuff that Agamemnon gets to keep. He's fought for this man for 10 years, and this fight is not his fight. This is a fight over Menelaus losing a woman to someone else, and now Achilles has lost a woman to someone else. I mean, this fight wasn't his fight up until now. He's done it for the good of Greece, for the honor of the Greeks. Honor that's at stake. Thank you, Cullen. It's all about another man being 
put out that his wife chose who to sleep with for once in her goddamn life. And how is Achilles being repaid? Agamemnon is taking away, I don't know, a prize object in his tent. He's taking away Briseis. And it's very clear, like I said, that Achilles is talking about Briseis like she's property. Gender as property. He's comparing her to a cow or goods. But again, this isn't even about how Achilles feels about Briseis. It's about his status. Because Achilles dared to let the prophet speak because he gave this man sanctuary to tell everyone how to lift Apollo's plague. Agamemnon has taken his rage out on Achilles because Achilles has challenged his status. And Achilles fires back with a fuck you if you want to be like that. I am out. You're challenging my status. I'm challenging your status. Fuck you. I'm out. There is so much fragile dick energy in the air. I'm pretty sure that the Trojan beach was filled with plague and fragile dick energy and everybody was just dying of it. God. Anyway, is Achilles posturing when he compares Briseis to cows and wealth and goods? Does he actually see her as a person and care about her, but he's talking about her like this to Agamemnon for strategic reasons or something? Does he care about her because someone else he cares for cares about her, i.e. Patroclus? We're told later on that Patroclus and Briseis are close. We're going to talk about that. It's coming up. Does their relationship mean that Briseis is also someone Achilles has come to care for? Are they, in fact, in a thruple? I don't know. What show are we watching? People have interpreted this all kinds of ways, as we've said already. We don't know. But what's on the page is that Achilles really does talk about her like property. This fight escalates. Achilles is at the point of literally drawing his sword and killing Agamemnon where Agamemnon stands when Athena appears before him. And she tells him, Oh, look, Athena appears to enter the fray. Athena, symbol of the patriarchy. I bet this isn't going to be extremely toxic. (laughs) And she tells him, Achilles, listen, you can't fight over a woman. It's wartime and it's it's a woman. It's always bros before hoes, my dude. I love that Athena materializes in front of Achilles to say bros before hoes. (laughs) Essentially, yeah. So, you know, you can sit the fight out, you can sit the Trojan War out for right now, but you can't kill Agamemnon. And look, here's my promise to you. Three times the amount of glory and goods will be yours. You can even make fun of Agamemnon, you can taunt him, but you can't kill him. There's some other plans for Agamemnon, don't worry about it. You can viciously roast him, but you cannot kill him. Athena here is like the goddess of heroes in the heroic endeavor. And she is literally just, nope, sorry, women don't matter here. It's She's referring to women as goods. She's like, I'll give you goods. If you want goods, I'll give you goods. You don't have to worry about this particular good if you want other goods. That's why I really struggle with her so much because I love her as a concept, but then she does this. Anyway, Achilles agrees not to kill Agamemnon, but he continues to verbally harass the king. He makes a promise to Agamemnon, and it's a doozy. Gear yourselves up. Quote, I swear on this a solemn oath to you that a day will surely come when the Greeks, one and all, shall long for Achilles. A day when you, despite your grief, are powerless to help them as they fall in swaths at the hands of man-killing Hector. Then you will feel a gnawing pang of remorse for failing to honor the best of the Greeks. And, you know, we covered this part of our story in our episode on Achilles and Patroclus. We're not going to rehash that here. Briseis is now 
seized by Agamemnon and taken away from Achilles. And Achilles is furious. He refuses to fight. He prays to Zeus and his mother to punish the Greeks, to let the Trojans burn the boats and be killed until they beg Achilles to fight again. Patroclus, finally seeing that the Greeks will all be slaughtered without Achilles' help, begs his lover to allow him to lead the Myrmidons in a charge. And well, we all know how that ended. Patroclus is slayed by Hector. Patroclus, the man Achilles truly loved, is slaughtered, essentially by Achilles' pride as well. When Patroclus's body is returned to Achilles, Achilles is bereft. He calls on his mom for comfort, and she goes to Hephaestus to make new armor for her son, the last armor he will ever need. Achilles ends his fight with Agamemnon, not because he thinks that Agamemnon is right, he's not even explicitly making peace with Agamemnon. All he wants to do is go onto the field as a mindless killing machine. He's had enough of love. Love is dead. Now he will have his fill of blood. The rage of Achilles. Everything is dead. Blood and gore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's at this point that Perseus is also returned to Achilles along with a mountain of booty and war prizes. Probably also other women included in that. I think it was like seven or 14 women also come with Perseus. Booty. That's what I said. And they were all women from the island of Lesbos. Were they hot? That's the key. They were all hot. Super hot. So, Briseis is returned with 14 hot lesbians. This is all terribly toxic. Agamemnon promises Achilles that he didn't fuck Briseis because that would be just a step too far in dishonoring Achilles. Everybody knows that Briseis is Achilles' property. And you just don't put your dick in another man's property. That's the, that's the rules. Bros before hoes, like Athena said. <laughs> As the toxic masculinity goes. Briseis' reaction to Patroclus's death is kind of interesting. And we are going to go into it now. So this is what she says when she's returned to Achilles and she sees that Patroclus is dead. Quote, when Briseis, beautiful as golden Aphrodite. Oh, those are fighting words. Look out. Um... Aphrodite, are you going to smite anybody? <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Briseis didn't say that. Homer did. True. Anyway, so when Briseis, beautiful as golden Aphrodite, saw the corpse of Patroclus mangled by the bronze blades, she flung herself on the body, shrieking loudly, and tore with her hands at her breasts, her tender neck, and lovely face. And the goddess-like woman wailed in her lament, Patroclus, dear to my heart, when I left this hut, you were alive, and now, alas, I return, prince among men, to find you a corpse, so evil dogs my steps. I saw the husband to whom my royal parents married me lie there dead by our city wall, mangled by the cruel bronze, and saw my three beloved brothers meet a like fate. But you dried my tears when fleet-footed Achilles killed my husband and sacked King Mynes' city, saying you would see me wed to Achilles, that he would take me in his ship to Pythia and grant me a marriage feast among the Myrmidons. You were always gentle with me. Now I will mourn you forever. So Briseis grieved, and the other women took up her lament, mourning Patroclus, it is true, but also their own sorrows. As for Achilles, the Greek elders gathered round him, begging him to eat, but he groaned and refused. Indulge me, dear friends. Don't ask me to sate my hunger or thirst while I suffer so. I will not break my fast before sunset. So, what does this tell us about Achilles and Briseis and Patroclus and this whole relationship? It's really tough. Like, she's basically saying, 
Patroclus dried my tears and lovingly dabbed at my wounds when Achilles killed my whole family. And he promised, and he promised that I would be married to Achilles. And that somehow made me feel better. What do we make of that? I have thoughts about this, okay? First off, let's assume Perseus has now been here for 10 years with Achilles, who is the man of man, right? Like, no one's going to fuck with you if you were Achilles' girl. So she has had a certain level of protection. And that is good considering the men she's amongst. And I think that, you know, Patroclus is like, look, you can be married to Achilles. He is kind of the worst, but you'll be queen. You'll be protected. No one will mess with you. I'm here. I'll keep him in check. Like whether or not they're in a power throuple, which is obviously my fan fiction that I'm biggest fan of. It'll be okay. Maybe you have a kid or two and then he leaves you alone. He does the next thing. Maybe he just leaves you alone because he's really more into me. You're just here to be his queen and give him a couple of kids. You can do that. Like, it's okay. Or maybe don't give him a couple of kids. It all depends on your interpretation of this. Like, whether or not Achilles and Patroclus are monogamous. Exactly. And I mean, the interesting thing you have to say is like, right... They've been together now for, I guess, close to 10 years. There's no children. Where are the children? Great question. I mean, and if there are no children, does that mean that Achilles really wasn't fucking her? He was just fucking Patroclus the whole time? We don't know why Homer chose not to give us children with with them, but we do know that Achilles definitely had kids with Didymea. So I don't know the answer to that question. I think that Briseis and Patroclus were definitely good friends, and they definitely had had a relationship, not necessarily a sexual one. They had a friendship. I think that my interpretation of this is that Patroclus is the only safe person on this beach. He's the only safe person on this beach, and now he's dead. And Perseus is like, oh, fuck. Like, where's my safe port in a storm? Like, you were the only safe person here. And not only that, but you were the only person who was making Achilles a safe person. Like, he's a safe person because Patroclus exists. If you're going with the interpretation that Achilles isn't fucking her because he's too busy fucking Patroclus. I don't know. Like, that's a question. I mean, look, people have written fan fiction and books about this one way, the other way. You can take it all kinds of ways. But like, this is one thing I can read between the lines here is that Patroclus is the only safe person and now he's dead. And what's she going to do now? And she's grieving for Patroclus, but she's also grieving for this life that Patroclus kind of promised her. And that life was a life after this war. It was off this beach. It was a life of safety. It was a life of status. It was a return to who she was before. And, you know, that's a real grief, whether she loved Patroclus or not, whether they were friends or not. She is really grieving for something that is maybe a final grief for everything she's already lost, including her family and friends. Like Patroclus was going to restore that through this marriage, I guess, with Achilles. And now maybe she's aware that now that Patroclus is dead, Achilles won't be long to follow him. And now what's going to happen to me? Well, it means that she's going back on the booty pile. Yeah. So now that Briseis has returned to Achilles, she and the women who've now been given over as ransom, they will join Achilles in publicly mourning for Patroclus. She will take on the role of a female mourner, as will Achilles, which is another place where Achilles really is gender bending. And what I find really fascinating about the paragraph that we just read is it speaks and hints at a relationship between Achilles and Patroclus and Briseis. Again, maybe not a power throuple, which is what I want, but a friendship. 
in some way. It could be that Patroclus was the person keeping Achilles safe, which is kind of my interpretation. Like it hints, it hints at a lot of things. Yeah, and that's also Madeline Miller's interpretation, you know? It could be that they had a companionship that might have defied gender boundaries. We don't know. But as we've said, it at least suggests that Patroclus was decent to Briseis. He was the only safe person on that beach. That's possibly more than any woman could hope for on that war-ravaged shore. So that's it for this week on that happy note. Join us next week for whatever the fuck we're doing next. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl and on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan. And we have a Patreon if you want to help support the podcast and help us keep making new episodes and putting out great content. Please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more details at patreon.com slash ancient history fangirl. We have a new five star review to read, Jen. Down the rabbit hole. This was the podcast that got me hooked. Thank you a thousand times over for keeping me sane during the dark early days of the pandemic. And that's from Tesla Crowley via Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for leaving a review. We really appreciate it. Keep these reviews coming and we'll keep reading them out. Thank you all so much. We'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.